0: Welcome, if you're watching online, glad to have you there. That's one of my favorite songs. You guys agree? Is that one of your favorites, too? Colleen agrees with me. Um, you guys know the story of that song? Anyone? Story of Robert Robinson. Um, Robert uh, and his friends decide that they're going to be funny and go mock evangelist George Whitfield. You guys heard that name before? Yeah, they're going to go there and mock him a little bit. Unfortunately for Robert Robinson, it was the day he got converted, I guess, fortunately. Uh, it didn't work out so well, the mocking part. Um, and the Lord uh, met him as a stranger, um, binded his wandering heart to himself. And so he would, at a young age, write this hymn, 23 years old. Any 23-year-olds in here? There you go, one back there. Where's your hymns, man? <laughs> you know, 23 years old, writing these words. Um, but as the story goes, Robert wandered from the Lord again. And at an older age, um, was in a stagecoach. That's like an old bus for people that don't know what a stagecoach is old public transportation, um, he's in a stagecoach and a, and a woman is kind of nose deep in a, in a hymn book and you know stagecoach is small so conversation starts and she says well what do you think about this one and hums the melody to Come Thou Found. and it breaks him and he comes back to the Lord from his own song, the song that the Lord put in his own heart, you know, years later. So, maybe next time you sing it, me a little bit more because of that. But it's one of my favorite songs, and the, the the lyric that I'm basing today off of is that lyric: "Tune my heart to sing Thy grace." Um, I've tried to grow accustomed to. I hope you guys do this too. To Thinking about the words that you're singing, not just singing like, you know, rotely, you know, like it's it's hard because you guys sound great. The person next to you sounds great. You know, it all it's all good. It's all working. And so you you just get into the moment. You're not even knowing what you're singing. But a good habit to be in is to be thinking, considering what are these words that I'm thinking, singing? Who are they to? All right. And so one of those, you know, I've had that thought when thinking um, about this song, Come Now Fount. And it comes to that lyric, to tune my heart to sing thy grace. I'm not very musical. Many of you guys know that. Carrie says my musicalness is in my ability to kind of discern good music. Like, you know, I can find uh, a good band or something like that that's really, um, uh, in, you know, unique in that uh, what they do. And they're very talented and stuff like that and carrie says that's where my musicalness lives which is really a nice way of saying don't sing near me and uh, don't play any instruments please you know that's the nice way of saying that um but being in tune really matters for music being in tune really matters you can tune a couple different ways um one is the band can kind of you just use their own little tuners all right. Everyone's got their own little tuner, and they all tune. And the little instrument is telling them if they're in tune or not. Um, if the if the note is equaling the right um, Hertz wavelengths. Okay, getting all sciency on you. Um, and so that little instrument is the reference. You can also tune a different way. Uh, Christian could over come over here and play A, and then Josh could tune to Christian's A. And now Christian's the reference, and they're all kind of unified in that reference make sense right we're all on board okay making sense okay the gold standard though for tuning is what's called a440 everyone ever heard of a440 oh we got two guys three guys all the worship team Uh, a440 means that the the note a will be 440 hertz and so you take a tuning fork you guys know what a tuning fork is we have a picture of tuning fork Right? There's a tuning fork. You guys seen that before? Bing! It makes a frequency. So you take a, a tuning fork that's tuned to A, you bang it, and then you tune everything to that. And now that is the gold standard. Not only are, is everyone referenced off the same thing, but it's also the gold standard for music that A would be 440 hertz. Who cares? Who cares? The idea, though, is that our hearts, obviously, the, as the, the 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 Bible's showing us, can be tuned, and it, they're tuned to something. It's not, you know, a, a guitar that's out of tune is tuned to something. It's tuned to some kind of reference, but there's a gold standard for being tuned to. All right, and hopefully we're going to look at that today. Having a heart that is out of tune makes it hard to sing of God's grace. That's the opposite of that lyric. Because tune thy heart to sing that tune my heart to sing thy grace. That's because my heart is out of tune and it can't sing of your grace. So today we're gonna to look at Psalm 77. I keep holding my water bottle. I don't know what that I'm like thirsty, but I don't want to keep doing it. But one more one more drink. Psalm seventy seven turn there with me. We're going to look at Psalm 77. As you can see, there's a little, um, uh, like, you know, mine's italics. It's to the choir master according to Jeduthun, a Psalm of Asaph. So, a little clap, a little collaboration between Asaph and Jeduthun. I don't know that guy. I've heard Asaph before, but Asaph and Jeduthun pen these words, and they put them to a melody. For the sake of God's people. All right, that's what we have here. A psalm that was put together by these two gentlemen and obviously the Holy Spirit for the sake of God's people. This psalm, as we'll see, is an honest cry. An honest cry for help. Because there's, they're living, who, the writer, Asaph, he might be writing personally. He might be writing from the perspective of the people of Israel. But the writer is writing from a perspective of a day of trouble. Anyone know a day of trouble? Anyone have experienced a day of trouble? All right, so hopefully we've gathered in most of the people here. Let me gather in everyone. Does anyone know someone that's experienced a day of trouble? All right, we got everyone, right? Everyone's good? We're all on this page? Okay. And this song is to be felt personally, kind of like Josh was talking about, that it's to be felt personally. But we'll also see that it's To me, to be, the day of trouble is to be lamented of corporately, to be joined in, everyone together lamenting this day of trouble. And so what's causing this turmoil in the writer? Who knows? It's not written for us. Sometimes the writers of the Psalms talk about specific things that are causing the trouble. This one has, there's no indication of what is causing the trouble. And so it's kind of nondescript. We don't really have much details from Asaph about what this is. Is it personal? Is it corporate? What's going on here that's causing this day of trouble? And maybe, like like me, you find comfort in that because now the day of trouble has been expanded to just this experience. It's not something specific. It's just an experience. And because of that, I can I can throw my day of trouble on top of this. Make sense? Like this non-specificness helps to normalize this troubled experience. You, I, we have, we do, and we will experience and face hardships that leave days and nights marked by discomfort. And he's gonna keep going and we're gonna get into it eventually. And he's going to talk about this age-old question. How can a good God and suffering coexist? How can an all-powerful God not have the ability to handle and and relieve the discomfort? It's an age-old question. Where is God in the midst of suffering? Anyone ever asked that question before? Yeah, I have. And so... We're left to apply this song because we don't have specifics. We're left to apply it broadly to our lives. And for him, you know, for the the context, we're thinking, okay, Israel, whether an Israelite, Asaph, or the nation of Israel, is struggling to maintain a faithfulness to the Lord while living in a fallen world and the consequences thereof living in a fallen world, and the consequences of living in that world. We live in the same world. So we can apply this to us. I want you to notice two things as we make our way through. We're going to do all 20 verses. I want you to notice two things. One, there's like this keen sensitivity to the harshness of their troubles, but more importantly, it seems like those troubles are magnified by the distance the writer feels from God. Okay, so there's circ- external circumstances that are hard, but the thing that is actually the worst part is that the, the the person experiencing it feels far from God as they experience it. And so it seems like that's the thing that he's going to kind of uh, really speak about. It's not just the circumstances. is that within the circumstances, the... The the worshiper feels distant from God. And that there's this implication through that, that if somehow the person could be, the worshiper could be in tune with God, to be close to God, that the trouble, the day of trouble, would be a lot more manageable. Does it make sense? That's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing I want you to notice is the progression of the psalm okay? It starts from a universal place. We've already established that. You or someone you know is going through a day of trouble or has gone through a day of trouble. It's a universal place. does not have to be a believer to experience that, all right, or a non-believer. Everyone experiences this. It starts from a universal place, but it then it progresses to a unique place that not everyone experiences. And so we're going to take note of how that progression goes forth In this psalm, how is a heart tuned to the Lord? How is a heart tuned to that gold standard? This is my uh, summary sentence. You can put that up if you have it. The meditation upon the Lord's demonstrated faithfulness is an act of faith which tunes our heart to worship. The meditation upon the Lord's demonstrated faithfulness is an act of faith which tunes our heart to worship. So let's start. I let pray, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Asaph and Jeduthun, and you're working through these instruments to pen these words, that we might know your heart and who you are and come to experience a closeness, a comfort from you in our day of trouble. So thank you for your spirit who's working in and amongst us. Please let him be the teacher today. It's in your sins and we pray. Amen. So let me start. Verse, uh, You're going to be wanting to look down your Bibles a lot today. Uh, Chapter 77, verse 1, it says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. So we open with this pleading of a troubled man. That double use of, I cried aloud to God, aloud to God, that's like an emphasis. Like I I had to get it out. I had to. It it was like it was bursting from, you know, from within me. So he's emphasizing that. But the confidence, you see, he will hear me. The confidence that the Lord hears doesn't necessarily provoke a confidence that he's going to do anything about it. It seems like Asaph knows, he hears me, but there's no response. And so it doesn't provoke a confidence yet that he's going to do anything about it. And this crying is not like uh, like a soft like weeping in the bedroom. (laughs) This is like loud. Like there's other places that the word cry is used for like thunderish crashes, like and lightning. And it's like, so it's like, it's intense there's an intensity to this cry from the worshiper but even so you see I seek the Lord and I know that he hears me so even kind of like in this place of not being sure if he's going to do anything about it the writer of this psalm is knocking and he knows that the door is going to be opened The writer's knocking, and he knows the door's going to be opened. You see, in verse 2, it says the day of trouble, and then it goes into the the night. Because we know that day usually ends up with night, right? That's typically how things happen. And so if someone's experienced days of trouble, they're usually experiencing nights of trouble as well. You know, being unable to sleep... That's not like the sharpest-edged uh, suffering. It's not like, it more like erodes us. You know, like di- you know, all, by the end of the week, if you're sleepless, man, you can't even see straight. But it happened like an erosion type. What do you think about when you lie awake on those sleepless nights? I'm not going to ask everyone to like raise their hand. Do you struggle with sleeplessness? All right, we're not, but I'm assuming, at least some of you do, probably the people that are home right now because they couldn't get up. Um, what do you think about when you are sleepless? You know, for the for the ones that deal with it a lot, they already know. Trying to chase sleep is like trying to chase one of those dogs that has the zoomies, you know, running around crazy, and you try to grab it, and you know, it's gone. And so those that experience a lot of sleeplessness know that trying to th- think about it actually makes it even harder to go to sleep. Right? They're veterans at that. Where do you go? Do you kind of play back what's happened in the past? Do you kind of try to work on like feel good fantasies like a I'm going to just think about a beach, you know, uh, mountains, a cabin. You know, like do you go there fantasies? Worries about tomorrow, the to-do list of tomorrow? In the empty lot of a restless night, where does your heart park? Where does your heart park? What space does your heart park in to sit there all night? For the writer, I think we see, and we kind of give a nod to, it seems like he parks his car right where it should be, refusing to be comforted, but still holding his hands out. Like, my hand is stretched out. That's like this posture of prayer. Like, I'm going to sit here and keep waiting. Even though you, I, you've you caused me to be unable to sleep, I'm going to keep waiting for you. It's interesting to think about this depth of sorrow. Uh, Spurgeon, you guys know that name, Charles Spurgeon, he has this quote that I really enjoyed. I thought it was great. Because you'll see that. It says, my soul refuses to be comforted. That's a deep, that's a deep level of sorrow to to refuse to be comforted. You guys ever experienced someone that's like that? They're going through the worst of it, and you're and you're you're trying to come alongside them, but they just push everything away, everything. Maybe you've been that person. But Spurgeon says this kind of t- on that idea of being re- refusing to be comforted. It says many a daughter of despondency has pushed aside the cup of gladness and many a son of sorrow has hugged his chains there are times when we are suspicious of good news and are not to be persuaded into peace though the happy truth should be as plain before us as the king's highway wonder if you've been there or you know someone that's been there hugging the chains refusing the cup of gladness that's a deep level of sorrow. And we, I think sometimes we kind of like skirt it, like that person, they don't even want to be better. I think, I think depression can get so deep that the cup of gladness looks like a bitter cup. And it's just this distortion. It's not true, but there's this distortion in our mind that I didn't want that. This has been, uh, this brings, uh, this, is go- this thought is brought out even more in verse 3. Look at verse 3. When I remember God, I moan. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, the, the idea is on him, my spirit faints. To the distracted heart, to the heart that's distracted, God can become an object of dread. It's like, uh, you know, you think about being in light. And you, we think about First John being in light is good, but sometimes I think the way First John has it, it's like being in light is like being in like a warm sunshine. Um, it feels really good. It like warms you. It, the, it makes you look good. That's why they bounce the light at your face when you're taking pictures, right? There's this there's this thing about a warm sunshine that that feels like that's what it means to be in the light of God. But I think for this heart that is so despaired, it can be more like a surgical light. You ever been under a surgical light? That is not pretty, right? It shows like all the flaws. It's like it, too intense, right? And so I think that's maybe where it feels like this place of despair can feel like the surgical light of God is too, its harsh. And we don't want to be in it. As the writer muses over and over, about who God is, it's like the burdens are pounding him. Like that Isaiah verse, the billows of the sea, the, the waves just keep crashing over him. He's trying to get out of it, but the waves just keep coming. And then you see that word selah. You guys see that word in your Bibles? Look down. If it's okay. To me, it's like right justified. It's over there. And selah just means rest for a second. Consider this. Consider what I just said. One piece, so we're going to stop for a second, one piece that this psalm has done is it kind of brings out the raw honesty of these times. The day of trouble and the raw honesty that comes with it. Like ugly thoughts. Blasphemous thoughts. But, I think for the true worshiper of God, they know that there's no hidden things before the Lord. So honesty is the best policy. So for a second just consider the moments of your life that you're thinking about right now when you think about day of trouble night of restlessness those moments those seasons of your life what was your dialogue with the lord like was it kind of cursory like you know the right answer but and you said the right answer but it wasn't truly what you felt it wasn't honest I found this word, you might have to Google it because I did. Perfunctory. Was that the type of language that you had with the Lord? Even dishonest. The most faithful thing we can do when we feel like this, like the psalmist is writing, is be honest with the Lord. That's the most faithful thing we can do because it lives in the reality that he already knows. When we're, when we're honest like that, even ugly honest, it's like we're knocking on the door again. And we know he's going to answer. Even though it more it sounds like this. You know, like, open the door. But he's going to come to the door and he's going to open it. Let's keep going to the second stanza. It says, verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, "Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart." Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will this Lord spurn forever, and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He shut? Has it, Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Selah. The second stanza, we start, remember, the progression. I asked you guys to look for the progression. We start to see that even though faint, there's some movement. That verse, that verse four, you hold my eyelids open. That's like saying like, he's saying like, because of you, Lord, I can't sleep. It's your fault. You won't let me. I don't understand what you're doing. You're not being who you said you were. So because we're messed up right now. I can't sleep. It's it's on you. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled I cannot speak. Troubled, that word is more like uh, like bruised. I'm so bruised that I cannot speak. I've taken on such a blow in my life that I don't even have words. Have you ever seen someone with this face? I've seen this face in the midst of someone losing a child. Just, you got no words. There's, there's nothing to say. Just a blow. That's the kind of blow that we're talking about here. It's truly a great grief that stops our ability to speak. But it's comforting to know. Drink real quick. It's comforting to know that our Father hears and understands weeping just as much as words. He doesn't need your words to figure out what's going on. Weeping will do. Verses 5 and 6 says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Finally, we're gonna see some action. The words of faithful honesty give way to action. The the psalmist is thinking: if there's no good in the present, if there's no good right here, my memory is just gonna ransack the past. I'm gonna find consolation. I'm gonna find it. I'm gonna search. So even though resolution didn't come immediately. The writer doesn't cease from looking inward, introspection, right? He's going to, that's what he's saying. He's like, I, I'm going to consider the days of old, the years of long ago. I'm going to meditate in my heart. That's like, I'm going to commune with my heart. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some heart work here and find the bottom of this sorrow. Where, this is a bitter stream of sorrow. Where's the fountainhead? I'm going to find it. So there's introspection, right? You see, this honesty has given way to some kind of action. That word for diligent search, you guys see that? It's like, um, you guys, any, any computer people around here? You guys open opened a computer in the last 10 years? Yeah, anyone? All right, good. So there's like this area where all your folders are, but there's also a little button in the top right that you can search for things. Instead of just searching, instead of the psalmist searching for, the you know, what he's looking for, consolation in the days of old, it's like he goes through every file individually, the whole hard drive. Open up, look, no, close it, open up, look. That's the type of diligent search that he's talking, like complete, like strip the bed, get rid of everything, look over and under and through and behind and before Everything. That's the kind of diligent search that he's making. And I wonder, did Asaph, a songwriter, did he have a song in the night that he had received from the Lord long ago? You know, the you know, our our life is lived in the valley of the shadow of death. Kind of walking, and a lot of it is marked by nighttime, darkness. And did Asaph have a song that the Lord had given him in a previous walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he's kind of, what was that? What were those words that he that he spoke over me? You know, he's, he's searching for that. If you don't have a song like that, make a note. Lord, give me a song in the night. Give me a song in the night. Verses 7 to 9. It says, There's like these five or six questions. You guys see them. However, maybe if you put a, a question mark on that first part of seven, it's six questions, five questions. These questions are brought on as he's searching. So he's making this diligent search in the past for consolation. And these questions are coming about because of that. It's the fruit of that. Do you have the courage to ask honest questions like this when life isn't making sense, or is you, are you like too scared? Like I, I can't ask the Lord these things. Right? I already know that He's faithful. No, honest, these honest questions are good. They're they're questions that are suggested by fear, like they might be true. Like there's this fear that these questions might be true, but it's funny because they're actually the cure of the fear as well. There's this, anyone has ever studied logic? No logic? Then I'm just going to tell you. Oh, we do have one. So in logic, there's this form of argument. I got to read it here. Um, Reductio, it sounds like a Harry Potter spelling. Reductio, reducio, reducio ad absurdum. You heard absurdum, absurd. It's this, argue, this form of argument that's like, the opposite will be so absurd and impossible that this can't be true, or th- this is true, sorry. So you're reducing the argument based on the absurdity of its opposite. And so as he's asking these honest questions, they're like this, this, he's asking because he's fearful that they might be true, but as he keeps asking, he's like, wait a second, this is absurd. This isn't who God is. Did he forget to be graceful? No, it's in his character. He's infinitely graceful. And so this it's like logically coming back on top of him. It would be absurd or impossible to consider these statements as true, which proves in the fact that they're false. Because one thing can may not be true and false at the same time. Has the eternal and infinite wellspring of God's compassion run dry? That's where that um, has in his anger, has he in his anger shut up his compassion? Shut up's like closed off. So there's this, it's like you built a, a, a dam of God's compassion, this, this, uh, this river of compassion, and you dammed it up. And has it been shut off? He's saying, obviously not. We see the absurdity of the statement, and we say, absolutely not. And the writer says, selah. Ponder this. How have you seen the Spirit at work in growing your honesty with Himself? Are there areas that you're trying to keep undercover? How have you grown in your dialogue with the Lord? Look back on these things. Praise Him if you've seen change in how you've grown in your honesty with Him. Let's keep going. Verse 10 says, Then I said, remember, watch for the progression. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So, in the confidence of this new position, the writer presses on and builds on his recollection of the past. He's kind of, he's in this place where he's asked these questions and he's seen the absurdity of them. And so, it seems like now he's a little bit more open. Maybe, maybe... You are still with me. Maybe you're not as far as I thought you were. And so you see like a little bit of momentum building. This is not just a general consideration of past history, like in general. This is a specific appeal. And what does he appeal to? Look in verse 10. To the years of the right hand of the Most High. So right hand would be like this Uh, metaphor or like equation to equal the salvation of the Lord, the saving ways of the Lord. That's what the right hand is. It's like a powerful, mighty hand that does work to save people. And that's what he's, that's what he's appealing to. I want to think about how you've been saving your people. And so look at the verbs up to this point in our, in our psalm some of the verbs, not all of them, but some of them that speak to this concept of remembering. There's crying, there's seeking, there's remembering, there's considering, there's meditating, there's searching, there's appealing, there's pondering. It's like he was in a thesaurus, just writing them all down, using them all. And you can feel the momentum building. This isn't This idea of using meditating or pondering or remembering to uh, help the heart get in tune with God, this isn't like unique to the Psalms. It spans the whole scripture. In the Old Testament, you'll see it a couple times. You think about Job. In Job chapter 3, Job's saying like, you wasted your time making me alive. You should have killed me from the beginning. I would have been better as a stillborn baby than being born into this world. It's a a chapter of lament. Obviously, you guys know Job's gone through the ringer, and he's lamenting his life. But at the end of Job, you see God put forth this idea of what it means to remember. And in chapters 38 to 41, the Lord speaks into the. Into the, into the space that Job is, and he, set, he declares everything that the, he has done and Job has not done. And so he, he re, he's reminding Job that I am God and you are not, and you're to find comfort there. And so Job, we see that in Job. We also see it in Jeremiah thirty one twenty one. Jeremiah, again, if you think about that word lament, Jeremiah is a book of lamenting. He was like the weeping prophet because no one ever listened to him. He went his whole time with a 0% success rate in people repenting. And so he's this prophet with the job to help people get back to God and no one's doing it. And so he's this prophet that is weeping often. And towards the end, we have this verse up there, Jeremiah 31, 21. Maybe there it is, and and you guys maybe have seen this on a coffee cup somewhere, but set up your road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. And obviously he's talking about like the road which you went away from me to help you get back to me. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. The prophet's experience was totality one of lament no one would listen to him but he has these words that consider well the highway the road by which you went as means of hope that the, as they return from the exile they would know the way back to the Lord back to his city. Habakkuk 3 I'm not going to get into this but maybe draw a note this is another prayer Habakkuk has this prayer. And its bookend, the, the the front and the back of the petition, is talking about the Lord's work. And actually, I have to read the end of it. Uh, I think it's Habak. You don't have to look it up, but let me just read it to you. Anyone know where Habakkuk is in their Bible? Here it is. Listen to this. So he's saying like, there's this prayer about. Uh, the things that they're going through, there's this idea in it that here's what the Lord's been doing to save his people. And this is particular to this one. It, becomes, it comes to a resolution that no matter the hard circumstances, this will the hard circumstances will not take away the joy of salvation. Listen to this. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath you. Yet I will quietly wait for you in the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Listen to these words. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there will be no herd in the stalls, all bad things yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And obviously, as we see later in our psalm today, Exodus 14, the crossing of the Red Sea. This is the moment that the Old Testament looks back on as the 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 representation of God's salvation. This is the moment. Hopefully you guys are all familiar with the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. You can see he's getting close to that. In in Psalm 77, verse 15, he says, With your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Jacob and Joseph were the two closest patriarchs to this moment of the crossing of the Red Sea. And so the writer says, Selah. Rest. Think about this. Ponder these things. If you, you individually, right here, if you were to appeal to the right hand of the Most High God in a personal way, think about times of old, times of your past, that you knew his saving power, that right hand, His saving power was on display in your life. If you were to do that, if you were to appeal to your minds, your, to your memory for those things, what would you be thinking about? Just think about that for a second. Where would your mind go personally? Does it, does even that little bit give your heart a little bit of a jolt? A little bit like, ooh, He was. That's who he was there. This is um, something we'll talk about at the end as well, but I want you to ask for these accounts. Ask for these appeals from one another. What was yours? What was yours? Let that be part of your conversation because as you see God working in other people's life, it adds to your collection, your Rolodex of the Lord's right hand working. So ask for these accounts from one another. Let's finish in uh, verses 16 to 18. Remember, now we have in our mind, he's moved us to, he's moved himself to Exodus 14. So we're going we're gonna to go there with him. Verse 16 says, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Nature is responding in fearful reverence to its God. Nature, this is, it's personifying nature. You guys see that? The waters don't have eyes, you know? The deep doesn't tremble like a person trembles. The the creation, the created world is, is being personified to see that it's responding as the Lord comes close in fearful reverence. This is the crossing of the Red Sea from a new perspective. It's not the perspective of the Israelites or the Egyptians. It's the perspective of the unseen. We don't know what creation was feeling when it came across, when God was coming to use it for his will. And it reminds us that if no one sings the praises of God, even the rocks are going to cry out. Even the rocks. And so we see And and we're reminded of that time where the sea was opened up and uh, the nation of Israel was able to pass through on dry land before it closed down on its enemy. So verse 19, look at verse 19. We're arriving at a heart that is now in tune with the Lord. We've seen the progression and verse 19 shows us a heart that is now in tune with the Lord. If you are a Bible marker-upper, if you are not scared to write in your Bible, verse 19 is one that you underline. Despair, confusion, honest, ugly questions was what marked the, the beginning of this, the the. The writer, the the psalmist is uh, march. um, But those things have given way to truthful and rich testimony and praise. What's the way God does things? It's not like nice and neat rows. You guys seen these cornfields around here. You know, it's not nice, neat plowed roads in a field. The way God does things, is more like a ship on the sea. There's effects that you can see. Ripples. Right? It ripples out. A little path. Bubbles. But before you know it, they're gone. And you don't, you don't, you don't quite understand how this got from there. From here to there. The, the way that God does things is a little bit mysterious. And that's what the writer is arriving at. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet... Your footprints were unseen. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 agrees with this. Your way, oh God, the, your way is a holy way. We, don't, we think holy, oh, you know. You see, not musical too, right? <laughs> holy set apart, different. Different than the created. All right? And so, Holy, set apart, that's your way, O Lord. And so as I go through this day of trouble, this rest, this sleepless night, these external circumstances, I do trust that you are on the sea. I might not see exactly where you're going because it dissipates quickly, but I know that you're out there. I talked about these themes carrying through the Old Testament, but they also carry through the Bible. When we come to the New Testament, the theme of remembering the Lord, what the Lord does, I challenge you to find all the places because it's innumerable. One that I want to carry us to is this example of baptism. Maybe you can think of your own, and I encourage you, where do you think of in the New Testament when you think about remembering things? But in my mind, because of where we're at at Exodus 14 and what, uh, what the psalmist is talking about, my mind thinks about baptism. Look at this, these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, verses 1 and 2. I'm waiting. I don't want to turn there. Um, look it. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The New Testament does this thing with the, the Red Sea crossing where it, it basically takes it and says like, Moses and the, the nation of Israel be, was being baptized as they went through the Red Sea. That they, they, they were on the verge of death and God saw them safely through the waters to salvation on the other side. That's what the New Testament does with that. The baptism that the believer experiences for you and I, that identifies us with Christ. His death is our death, right? We're baptized into his death like we're going through the Red Sea and his resurrection is their resurrection. We are able to get through the Red Sea, not because of anything that we've done, but because he's cleared the way. Not only, for us, does, do we have the memory to look back on that, or like Jeremiah says, like a guidepost for us, but we also are privileged to witness others doing the same thing. And so it, it adds to our collection. In our baptism, that, that sacrament that we do, under the water, out of the water, we are reminded of our own sin and need for salvation and God's great grace to bring us through those waters. That our wages were of, of sin were death and we went into those death waters and we were able to come out on the other side. We were able to be resurrected to new life on the other side. Look at verse 20. It says, You led your people like a flock, by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This same one that showed terror to the nation of Egypt for the oppression on the people of Israel. This same one that showed terror to them is a shepherd to the nation of Israel. Is a shepherd. The writer's implying, you, remember, he wasn't living, Asaph isn't alive at the Red Sea Crossing. He's counting on, Things that he's heard. The story that's been passed along to him. And he says, you led your people like a shepherd. Like they were a flock and you were a shepherd. And you used these instruments, Moses and Aaron. You know what? You're going to continue to lead us as that same shepherd. You're going to continue to lead us. So, with that being said, how, where does your mind go as you think about applying this to your own life. Another way to put that, because we're talking about songs, and we have a, a corporate song here. You know, there's nothing individualistic about this as it gets to the end. He's, he's calling out on the, the collective experience of the nation of Israel. And so we have that, and we have the collective experience of our brothers and sisters in the church. But what stanza would you, what what stanza would you add at the end of this that's personal to you? That gets your heart in tune with the Lord? I would, you know, just, that's like, if you want to apply this to your life, consider what, what couple verses would you put based on your walk with the Lord that would add to this? Because, Moses would sing, you know, back in Exodus, or actually, I think it's Numbers, Ex- the end of Exodus or Numbers. You see the song of Moses, and there's this celebratory song of making it, making it through that Red Sea experience. We get to sing the song of the Lamb. Asaph didn't get that. He had it in faith, right? Just like Abraham had it in faith, but Asaph didn't have the clear picture of what the song of the Lamb sounded like. We do. We do. So don't get stuck here. Add the song of the Lamb that's applied to your heart to this song. And let use that when your heart gets out of tune with the Lord. I'm going to finish here. It says, or I'm going to, it, it doesn't say, my notes say this. It doesn't say this. The psalmist, you know, it starts in a minor key, sad, but it ends on a major key. And he reaches for the, the, that major key when he wants to highlight God's faithfulness. And so how do we reach for that major key as we apply our justification that we have through Jesus Christ and we how do we how do we apply that to anchor us? Kyle read it earlier, Hebrews 6:19. There it is. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You guys ever feel like you're in a storm? Yeah. You want to you want an anchor to tether you in a storm? It's justification. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain in the holy of holies. That's what it's referring to. The inner place. The presence of God. You are tethered to the presence of God because of Jesus Christ. You you will never come out of that no matter what the storm is. You're tethered to it. And that's that's a hope for the soul. The good thing, though, is even though we live in a, you know, we talked about this last week a world that's still marked by sin, right? We agree? You guys ever warring with your flesh? Yeah. You ever you ever on the wrong end of someone else's sin? Yeah. You ever feel like you're in the sights of the enemy just lined up? Yeah. Right? We're still marked by that even though God's spirit dwells in and through us and around us. There's gonna be a day where the, there is no more songs of lament. Look at verse 20. Revelation chapter 21. We've read, we've we read this all the time. It doesn't get old to me. I hope this doesn't get old to you. Revelation chapter, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. Here, this is a the midnight cry, you know, this the psalmist midnight cry. The feeling of Remember, it wasn't just circumstances, it was feeling far from the Lord in the circumstances. That feeling of being rejected and distant from him, thinking that he's withdrawn his compassion with those questions. All those things are going to be no more. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Those things don't make it through the baptism waters, the next baptism waters. And he who was seated on the throne, he said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Water without price. To remind us, you put up that um, one slide. A heart out of tune needs to be in tune. The Lord does the tuning, that's what the come now found, is asking for, Lord, tune my heart. It's not you tuning it yourself. It's a meditation on the Lord's demonstrated faithfulness. Now, we should be thinking about the cross. And that's an act of faith which tightens the, what's it called? The end of the guitar? Tuning machine. Tightens or loosens and gets us right in line so that that note is perfect, referenced against God, referenced against his heart. And our heart bursts. As soon as they, you ever hear like a a terrible G chord that's out of tune, and then one that's perfect? It's way different. And we feel that. We feel that. That's what, it's, it's, it's not, you know, the, the language of the scripture is very unique in that it can pull feeling out. So if you're feeling a little out of tune with the Lord, consider how the psalmist went from that same place to uh, singing his praises and testifying to his goodness. Consider that what happened there. Meditate on that. Father, we are grateful for this place to come, to consider together. I ask that you would give us each a song in the night, a song for the night, because we're not oblivious. We're also trustworthy of your word and we know if we haven't experienced that valley of the shadow of death, we will. And we need a song to carry us through it. A song of your faithfulness. It has nothing to do with us. It's outside of us. It's alien to us. Except that you want to give it to us. As a a father would teach their son or daughter a hymn of old thank you lord you're, you're so good help us to leave thinking about you it's in your son's name we pray amen